Welcome back. Class is back in session. As always, I am your Professor Hamby here with my TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Oh. You know what we're back to? What? Sandman. Let's go. For those following along, this is volume four of the Sandman Deluxe Edition, published in 2021. We are beginning and finishing today the story arc of the world's end. Dun-dun-dun! Now, a lot of people consider these simply disjointed stories that are randomly thrown together in a, another bout of Gaiman wanting to delay ending the series. I disagree. I think that these stories are very much purposeful and show a clear thematic purpose as we progress towards the penultimate story arc, The Kindly Ones, which is the death of Morpheus. Mm -hmm. So, this is the penultimate to the penultimate. I'm excited. And we begin with a dude driving a car and a woman sleeping. Because of course. And then Krampus runs across the road. Or maybe it's like a German chupacabra. I don't know. Does German chupacabra make you lose it? I I wasn't ready for that. Alright. So, the German chupacabra freaks the driver out. Fair. <laughs> he crashes the car. He's a little messed up, but the woman in the car is really messed up. And she wasn't a good friend of his. They were just driving for convenience together. Mm. And he manages to pick her up and carry her through the snowstorm mm-hmm. to a place called the World's Inn. And it says above it, a free house. Now, do you know what a free house or a public house means? No. It is an old British tradition. It is basically a pub, sometimes also an inn. And by tradition, they must provide uh, access to the heat of the place and food and drink, if you can afford it. Mm. And depending on the time you were in, there were a number of laws over the time in Britain to make requirements. They often served as postal houses. Uh, Sometimes they were required to maintain stables for the king's riders. Uh, Some places had if not laws, at least traditions that they needed to shelter people in times of really bad weather. Mm. So there were some obligations in addition to just being a place where you grabbed a drink and maybe they had rooms upstairs or something. Mm -hmm. And if you couldn't afford a room upstairs, maybe for a penny, you could sleep by the fire in the common room or something. And they varied. But anyway, he wanders in and who knows what he's expecting because he's American and seeing an old, you know, British Georgian pub was probably not in his plans. Mm -hmm. But I think the centaur really freaked him out. Fair. It it would freak me out, too. Well, they needed a medic for the woman, and, I mean, a centaur is a pretty handy medic to have, I guess. Yeah. At least they're saying so. Uh, They refer to him a surgeon of no mean skill. So a woman in an Indian sari gives him a drink, 
and she is the more or less proprietor of the place, although she says she came to it. Uh, I will go ahead and note that she is never named in the series. Mm-hmm. And in the annotated Sandman, she is given the name that translates as passion. In my personal headcanon, she's Ishtar, mm. who blew up in the explosion at Brief Lives. Mm. And rather than wait for Destruction's curse to come to her. And she has returned to dreams and found herself a place at the world's end. This is an inn in the realm of dreams. It's not clear if it's some sort of scary, like we saw in Doll's House. Or sorry, rather, a game of you. It might be a, related to the soft places, because we see people from different times as well as dimensions or realms here. Mm-hmm. And we see people with elven ears, for example. We see people from 19th century England, 20th century America, ancient Rome, all gathered together. And as we'll see later, clearly other places and dimensions. And he asks, what are you all doing here? Mm-hmm. And he's told, well, we're killing time and obeying an old tradition by telling stories. Mm-hmm. And they say that what's happening outside is a reality storm. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Destruction, thinking he was clever, said that the flip side of dreams was reality. He said that back in Brief Lives. Which is just so idiotic. Well, because it's obvious. Yeah. And, and Dream clearly knew this. I mean, they reorder reality when enough cats uh, uh, dream together that they'll take back over history. Mm-hmm. They can reorder the past, redefine reality. So a reality storm that connects the mortal world to the dreaming is probably not a sign of good things to come. No. And clearly a harbringer. In fact, this whole story arc is essentially a literary harbringer for the next story arc. Which we might break into two parts, because Kindly Ones is pretty long. Now, each of these stories is going to be drawn by a different person, so I think the art is interesting to look at, okay. although all written by Gaiman. So our first story is from an older fellow, and we get this art style that, to me, is extremely evocative of sort of early 20th century German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. And although almost unknown in American comics... Uh, European bandesneres have used this for, you know, its stark, evocative effect frequently with these thick, dark shapes, strongly defined borders between colors, you know, all this kind of stuff, and, and these dramatic angles of view. I mean, look at where they're sitting in the office at their desks. Hold on, I gotta go backwards. And they're sitting at those desks there. Look at that. It's dramatic. Yeah. Now, in this story, the guy, the protagonist, wanders the city until he eventually wanders into a strange train, sees Morpheus, though he doesn't know it's Morpheus, Mm -hmm. and wanders around this empty version of the city that's similar but not quite the same until he finds a madman who says that he's inside the dream of the city. And the old man uh, basically points him at a potential way to get out. 
He does. He manages to do so. Meets a woman who might be deaf. And eventually stumbles out say, and says to the others, what scares him isn't that the city's dream, but what will happen when they waken. Mm. Neil Gaiman has said that this was his attempt to write a Lovecraftian story. Oh. And has joked that you know it's Lovecraftian because he used the word uh, uh, cyclopean in it. Which is a word Lovecraft love. Yeah. So that's his story. And we have a story that features, of course, Morpheus. Mm. And Morpheus just kind of being Morpheus. Now, next up, we see a rather dingy bathroom and the character of the story taking a pee. Next to somebody who looks like they're a walking corpse. But that's not as bad as the monkey that walks in in the Sergeant Pepper's outfit. Agreed. There's all types here. That's all I'm saying. And you can have a lot of fun looking in the background at stuff and seeing stuff. For example, the artist had some fun here. What does that look like in the upper left corner over here? Morpheus and Death having a drink like they did when they met Hob Gadling. Yeah, I like that. So there's a lot of fun little things to find if you look in the... In, the nooks and crannies of the art here. Mm -hmm. And next up, we get a story from... Clericon, the fairy. Oh, we haven't seen him in a while. Not since he was sleeping with young Egyptian boys. Thank God. And now he is being sent off to some place he was run out of hundreds of years ago, where he will again attempt to sleep with everyone he can. Because he's a creep. He is the James T. Kirk of fairy. That's all I gotta say. Um, I know in the show, James T. Kirk wasn't interested in men, but there's a great deal of wealth of uh, fan fiction and stories that would disagree. Well, yeah, that happens in every fan, though. <laughs> I know. So, he runs afoul of the authorities. It's a fun little story. And he ends up imprisoned, and Nuwala, his sister, stops by, who finds him imprisoned in cold iron, and convinces Morpheus to free him. Mm -hmm. So again, Morpheus is tangentially connected to this story. Now keep in mind, we, we kind of we have a story within a story here. Mm -hmm. So we have people telling stories inside a story being told by Gaiman. But the framing element has this guy telling somebody about these stories. So right now, we're at a story within a story within a story. Within a story. No. Just three levels. We have Neil Gaiman telling us a story, the American guy telling a story about the other people telling stories. So three layers of stories right now, which I think Gaiman had fun with. Probably. And we're going to go through all this pretty quick because I don't think there's a reason to drag this out. The third story features the redheaded boy that's been sitting at the table who looks like Huck Finn after a really long bender and discovering what Caribbean rum can do. I mean, does he not? I cannot speak to that. I, that, that, by the way, is T.A. speak for yes, but I don't want to admit it and encourage you. Again, am I wrong? I will not speak to that. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> 
So we find out that he ran away from home and he got on a ship and he's hanging out. And this guy is found as a stowaway on the ship, an Indian, uh, Asian Indian, to be clear, not a, a Aboriginal American or First Nation or whatever. And he is about to be tossed off the ship, perhaps put out at a port, perhaps thrown overboard, uh, depending on how much he pisses off the captain. But then this guy in a very nice gentleman's outfit calls the captain in, and they have a private conversation. And then when the door opens, the captain says, Mr. Gadling's taking care of his passage. Mr. Gadling. As in Hob, Robert Gadling. So this is 19th century, and Gadling is moving by ship. And we find out essentially that this Indian guy is part of a very small fellowship. Another immortal but who's come immortal through a totally different way. And then Gaiman does one of the things that Gaiman does best. He tells a folktale that's completely of his own invention, but sounds like it is an actual old folktale. And I love this one. So in this one, we go back to ancient India, and a holy man approaches the palace, and he's like, I can do amazing things. And the palace guards are like, yeah, whatever. I wish to see the emperor. Eh, whatever. Just so that He cuts off his own hand and reattaches it. They're like, okay, you can see the emperor. So he goes to the emperor and he says, I have through my great mystic arts managed to make two, and I can only ever make two of this great fruit. This, this amazing fruit. It looks like an apple. I have eaten one and I give the other to you. You will be immortal and unkillable. And the king is impressed. And he asks for proof. So they cut a tiny sliver off it and feed it to a mongoose. And they chop the mongoose up. They even burn it alive. And it restores. And the king is so overwhelmed that he takes it to his wife. But then once the king is gone, she turns to the captain of the palace guards, who's secretly her lover, and gives it to him. And then he takes it to a courtesan who he's in love with and gives it to her, who in turn takes it to the king to show, hoping for a reward, unaware of the loop. The loop. So the king abandons his kingdom and eats the fruit, and this is the origin of a folktale hero in India that is an actual folktale hero. Mm. But Neil Gaiman's invented history for it. Mm -hmm. And as this is being told, guess what? what? We now have a story inside a story inside a story inside a story. <laughs> We're now four stories deep. There we go. And by the end of it, uh, they keep saying, they keep talking about all these mysteries in the world, mm -hmm. right? And wouldn't it be cool to see, you know, something like, on the old maps, they put these sea serpents and said, monsters will be here. And then as a storm is coming, look. Oh, damn, that's impressive. Right. A giant sea serpent. And it soon moves away without attacking the ship. You see 
the sailors are crying. Mm -hmm. They're so overwhelmed by that magnificence. But they won't talk about it after. And there's something here about the interaction between reality and dreams. They had something from their dreams enter the real world, and it's overwhelmed them and blown them away. Mm -hmm. But they're almost afraid to talk about it, like it will somehow sully the experience. Mm -hmm. And there's some afterwards conversation with Hobgadling and the young boy about the nature of this. The boy's name is Jimmy. And he says, yeah, you know, if you made an effort, you could... Tell people, some people might believe you. With enough work, you might get some of them to say and admit they saw it. But what are you going to do? Put it in a newspaper? Nobody's going to believe it. Mm-hmm. And so the lesson here is that even if a dream enters the real world, it is still your personal experience only. Mm-hmm. And only connected to you. And by the end of it, we find out that Jimmy is actually a girl who's pretending to be a boy to get around. And then that brings us to the next story, where our protagonist has wandered upstairs and run into some vaguely Asian person. Mm -hmm. We don't get from the dialogue any hints of what kind of nationality or region they may be from, just drawn in this vaguely... Asian style, mm-hmm. and the guy says, how'd you get here? Were you caught in a storm? And he says, I saw no storm. I am on my way to somewhere else. Where are you from? Seattle. Seattle, Washington, in America, the United States of America. Uh, sure, I mean, how many Americas are there? Many, 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 many. What? But perhaps less than there used to be. Asks, who is your president? George Bush. And before Bush, Reagan. And before him, Jimmy Carter. Ah, you are from one of those Americas. You have my sympathy. One of those Americas. Because there are these many worlds. And while the many worlds had been a very clear part of DC Comics, which Gaiman envisioned this in, the publishing had kind of pushed away the idea of these multiple universes within Sandman a little bit, or at least pushing away Sandman from the DC idea of it. We had seen, previous to this in Sandman, multiple universes in the sense of the realm of fairy, the hell, you know, these other dimensional spaces, but not other versions of Earth, say. But now we will. And this story revisits. You have to... Look at a little box here. It says, The Sandman, featuring characters created by Gaiman, Keith, and Drigenberg. Prez, created by Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti. So we're about to pull in an old figure from DC Comics, created by Joe Simon, who certainly has done many big stuff on his own, including being one of the creators of Captain America for Atlas Comics in the 40s. Uh, some of his best-known work was in collaboration with... Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby. <laughs> I had a feeling. Because American comic books are three degrees of Jack Kirby. Yeah. You don't need seven degrees. And then seven degrees of Gaiman. Probably. Now, Prez was a four-issue series published in, I want to say, the 60s? 
And we're going to get the basic idea of the plot from this. But it didn't last long. So again, Gaiman is showing his nerd card here and pulling into some comic book obscura, which I love. But you get it. Right. Now, we're told that this child is born and the child is actually named Prez. Because... It's short for president, and the mother wants him to be president of the U.S. one day. Please stop naming your kids after careers you want your kids to have. Yep. So, he grows up in this town with clocks, and he becomes this genius. He fixes all the clocks. He understands how to make the town work better, how to rebuild public services. And he's propositioned by this figure named Boss Smiley who demands that he do things Smiley's way. And Prez refuses, and after a change in the voting age and age of presidents, he, at 20 years old, becomes the youngest president of the U.S. in history. Damn. And becomes elected for a second term. And this, by the way, this scene down here, with these, fig with these hippie figures, including the Aboriginal American with the peace symbol, uh -huh. that is a redrawing of Prez number one. The cover of Prez number one, I should say. Damn. Right. So, for eight years, Prez becomes president of the United States, and he ushers in a new golden age of America. Ooh. Uh, they you know, are you familiar with who Jim Belushi is? John Belushi. Sorry. Name sounds familiar, but it's not ringing any bells. He was an actor who rose to fame in the late 70s with Saturday Night Live. He was brilliant. Okay. He also died young because he was a heavy drug user. And he highly associated drugs with performance. Mm -hmm. And here we see a scene of Prez guest starring on Saturday Night Live on one of John Belushi's famous sketches. And in an interview with him years later saying... Yeah, Prez showed me you didn't need to be fucked up at work at your peak. I mean, here's a guy working 18 hours a day. Fate of the free world depends on him, and he's clean, you know. That was scary. So we see that Prez has had this huge effect. He's not only improved the world, but he's improving people's lives through his example. And Boss Smiley doesn't like this, because he's not playing by his rules. So in a scene reminiscent of John Hinckley Jr., trying to get Jodie Foster's attention by assassinating President Reagan, somebody tries to assassinate Prez and instead kills his wife. Mm. Except this person is trying to get the attention of the Silver Age Wild, the superhero. So, as the story goes on, eventually Prez leaves office. Mm -hmm. He dies. He disappears. Nobody knows what happens to him. All kinds of theories exist out there. And we don't get to find out how he died. Mm -hmm. But what we do get to see is death coming to collect. Mm. And death, and he asks, am I going to finally get to meet the watchmaker? Mm. Now, time has been a continuous trend in his stories. Mm -hmm. And wanting things to run correctly. And the watchmaker is basically his term for God. And Death says, well, this is more the head of the local franchise. And you'll find out. And he's walked through pearly gates to meet on a golden throne Boss Smiley. Who basically intends to make him sit next to him and torture him through eternity. Enjoy. 
Because he didn't follow his rules. But these are ultimately all stories about Morpheus. So Morpheus shows up. And says, Trez can leave and go wherever he wants. Boss Smiley says that Dream has no power here. And Dream says, I'm the prince of stories. I have domain anywhere that there are stories. And Prez still has more stories to tell. So, he's let go. And with that, the Asian guy says goodnight, and the story ends. So, we also have, by the way, this will become relevant later, this little watch that's given to Morpheus. And nothing more is said about it. This becomes relevant, I think, in Overture. It's never said that the two watches are the same, but I think they are. So, now as we continue, by the way, I love if you look down there, very bottom panel... All there's a giant thunder boom and all these little just weird squiggly frog-like creatures, some of whom are holding wine glasses, look panicked. Uh-huh. And I love them. Every time I reread this, I look for them. And we, by the way, still have a dream and Morpheus looking figures over there in the corner. Uh-huh. So as the story goes on, there are more stories to share. Now these get really interesting. Because one of these corpse-like people turns out to be named Petrifax. And notice here, we have many different inker and penciler credits given. Because there are different stories being told inside here. So it turns out Petrifax is from the Necropolis. A city-wide city of the dead that specializes in the internment and care of the dead from all the places in the multiverse. Mm -hmm. And the variety, I I don't want to spoil too much. I think it's a fun story to share. But in one of these, he's basically being punished. He has to go to an air burial where they take the organs out of somebody and prepare it to maximize its consumption by the scavenger birds. And they sit around to tell stories while waiting for the birds to eat the body for an air burial. And we have stories told by another inside the story being told by him. So we're back to four layers of stories again. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but they're fun to tell. But we're going to talk about two of them because they're relevant to the greater Sandman. One is this red-haired guy who just wanders through the necropolis one day. Mm-hmm. Does he look familiar? A little. Is who he... did you last see that was a big, buff, burly, red-haired guy with a red sack I was gonna on ask, his staff? I was going to ask, is it destruction? It is destruction. And he's talking to one of the characters and says... It's important to have places like this. Once the spirit's flown and the spark of life is gone, then the rituals of farewell are needed. All the rituals we go through to help us say goodbye, you have to say goodbye. And they have a conversation where this boy in the story says, well, the necropolis litharge does not change. And Destruction says, everything is mutable. This is not the first necropolis you know. 
There was a necropolis before it. That necropolis, which is no longer named, went bad. And that necropolis, they began to regard what they did as a job, not a task. There was no care, no love. There was no longer a sense of completion. Bodies were placed in graves or burned without respect or love or solace. They had books of ceremonies, but the books became wormy and crumbled to dust, and no one cared for them. Then one day, six strangers came to the city. Our sister is dead, they said. Where's the body? Where's the offering? asked the necropolitans. We have brought no body, said the visitors. We have come for her cerements and for the books of ritual which are in your keeping. The necropolitans laughed and called them mad. Then the oldest of the six, a blind man, raised his head. He was dressed in gray from head to foot. This is no true necropolis, he told them. Your charter is revoked. And a great wind came down from the mountains, and the city died. This was the death of despair. Now, we know approximately the time because later some of the characters talk and say, we just can't believe that story. I mean, we know for fact that the necropolis existed now for 80,000 years. So that puts the death of despair about 80,000 years ago. Damn. And we never learn anything more about it except one thing. In the very last storyline of Sandman, The Wake, uh, Daniel talked as the new dream, talking to his mother, Hippolyta, who brought down the kind, who plays a critical role in bringing down the kindly ones on Morpheus, mm-hmm. says to her, the last person responsible for a death of the endless was the murderer of despair. He will spend eternity dying for what he did. And he had less cause than you did. Yeah! Things aren't looking up. (laughs) And that's her son, technically. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Careful when you fuck around with the Endless. That's all I'm saying. And then we get a story about a woman who was the mentor to the oldest member of the group of the Necropolitans there within the world's end. And she tells several stories. So we, by the way, now have a story inside a story inside a story inside a story inside a story. We're now up to five deep. That's as deep as we're getting, though. But you know Gaiman had fun. But in this story, she's a young girl looking for something, and she runs away and ends up in a huge room beneath the city. There were six silver ceraments hanging in the room, shining in the darkness, and a huge book on a locked, closed lectern. And a voice screams to her, Which one of them is dead? No one's dead. Not that I know of. Just the... I broke a flask of preserving fluid and I ran away. This is no place for you, little girl. Let me sleep until I am needed. But I dare not leave. My master will have the skin off my back. Very well. The flask is mended and filled. Your master has not noticed your absence. Leave this place, and I will guide your feet to the world above. How do I know you're telling the truth? 
There's a question. Had you had faith and not demanded proof, you would have been wiser. But seeing you need proof that I speak truly, look at your right hand. And so her right hand was withered to her corpse hand since she was a young girl. But that is the room with the cerements of the endless for when they have died. Wow, he's a cranky asshole. Well, we don't know who it is. Um, we will get into this in Overture, but some people believe it is the voice of, uh, Knox, the mother of the endless. Mm. Although that would seem to contradict the, her not knowing that despair has died when Morpheus encounters her. But then again, time is a flexible concept, the more powerful creatures are. A concept I'll talk about when I finally get around to my cosmology of the endless episode. But it seems that the more powerful on the chain of endless you are, the more time becomes, to paraphrase Doctor Who, timey-wimey-wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> um, because, you know, you need a certain degree of storyteller fiat to just make things happen. Continuity is for pussies, apparently, in the writing world. Which sucks as a reader sometimes. Yeah, especially if you're obsessed with continuity. Um, but these are, and if it were a continuity of a story set in a quote-unquote realistic world, that'd be one thing. But this is a continuity of dreams. I'm willing to give it more uh, slack. Along with the lobster people there in the corner arguing with whatever the heck those guys are. These these feel like extras in, like, high school to middle school plays. I mean, what's left over there is, like, ex is like rejected drawings from a Mobius uh, graphic novel with fever dreams of a Maine fisherman um, <laughs> taking cocaine and Prozac together. That doesn't sound that bad. I worry about you so much. So much. Now you might say, what does that last story have to do with Morpheus? These are all Morpheus stories, right? Well, these are the people that will have to bury Morpheus. This is letting us see forward into that. Our poor emo asshole. Yep. And then the sky lights up. With its colors. And we see Destiny filling the entire sky, walking across it with his book chained to his wrist. And then behind him follows the others. With a casket. Carrying a casket with a flower on it. Aww. And tr behind, we see despair. We see the rat from a game of you. We see the librarian. We see the pumpkin-headed yeah. caretaker. The queen of fairy. Bass. Oh, Odin. The dog. Thor. Martin Tenbones. Fiddler's Green. Mm -hmm. One of the angels, probably Ramiel. The angel of silence. Mm -hmm. And then trailing at the very end, death and delirium. Mm -hmm. And it's a heartbreaking scene. The artist did a great job. I know. Really phenomenal. Uh, hound. Sorry, the hound is scratching against my guitar. Come here. Come on, hound. So, at the end, the storm is over. 
Uh, Petrifax, the student at the Necropolis, decides to jump on the centaur and ride away for new adventures, which yeah. his mentors are not happy with. And Charlene, the girl that was injured and fixed up by the centaur surgeon, decides she's not going back. She is staying with the unnamed Indian lady, to who I think is Ishtar, uh, to run the world's end. Someone's got it. And now we finally see who this guy is telling the story to. He's sitting in a bar talking to the bartender back in the real world. And the bartender asks, so what happened then? I don't know. Next thing I'm fully certain of, I was waking up in a McDonald's parking lot in the car. It was Charlene's car, but it wasn't even scratched. So what happened to her? There never was a Charlene. The papers for the car were in my name. I had a copy of the company magazine, and she wasn't listed in it. Her photograph wasn't there. I called my old employer's. And she had never worked for them. So I said I wasn't coming back. So, was it a dream? I guess so. A dream where what he knew before when he was awake was no longer there? Mm -hmm. Reality had rewritten itself. Mm -hmm. And essentially, in a sense, she died. This is a story about dreams and death. And he literally is telling the story about of a woman who disappears into dreams, and in the more as far as the mortal world is concerned, she died and was never born. Mm -hmm. This is a future echo of the death of Morpheus. Mm -hmm. And so we end the world's end. That was, that was sad. Well, it's not going to get real bright and happy from here on out. I had a feeling. Yeah. All right. With that, class is over. Boom, boom. Okay. Class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere. We are on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, even on YouTube. Additionally, you can find me on social media, on Mastodon, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok. I probably have a copy of the podcast on an iPod mini in a hobo's pocket in San Francisco. That's right, time travel. Do you want to know where you can find all these links? You can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Profhamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. It is the comics course, and don't forget your homework.